Hey, y'all, before we get started, as I mentioned, please, please rate and review Murder and Alliance. A lot of people don't understand how important that is for podcasters. But the more reviews and ratings, the more people who will find the podcast, and the more likely we will get tips and leads to help find out who killed Avon. Previously on Murder and Alliance. The police started putting the pieces together, which was the first time they had been given the name. Joe Wells. She grabbed her by the hair. Yeah. Pull her hair pretty hard. She was standing next to the sliding glass door. No, she was sitting on the couch to begin with, then she jumps up and runs over the sliding glass door. After you cut Yes. Two blocks away from Yvonne Lane's house, they recovered that lock blade knife. Detectives did find a print on the handle. They got fingerprints of people involved in the case. No match. I did not do this. And although you thought that the evidence proved it, I know in my heart and soul I did not do this. And I wouldn't wish this on anyone. This is Murder and Alliance, an active investigation into who killed Yvonne Lane. I'm Maggie Freeling. David Thorne has now been incarcerated for 22 years, almost half of his life, after being convicted of the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend, Yvonne Lane, in his 20s. David is now 48 years old. Do you, I mean, do you, even today, do you sometimes feel like this isn't real? Yeah, because this is a life with inside of a life because this is this is only existing, it's not really living. He figures his best chance to get out of prison is to help find out who really killed Yvonne, which is tough to do from behind bars, but he does have allies on the outside who support him in different ways. For example, David stays in touch with his son he had with Yvonne, Brandon. You know, you told me you believe in his innocence. What, I mean, what is it that made you believe in his innocence? To me, from what I understand of the case, stuff just didn't make sense. And I just feel also that he really didn't do it. He had no reason. Today, Brandon says they have as much of a relationship as they can. Have you gone to visit him in prison before? Yep. What was that like? It's a prison. It's a little weird. Does it make you feel any kind of way to see your dad in prison? It, it's awkward. It's, it doesn't feel right. I asked David what he thinks about what happened to his son. So tell me about that. I mean, his mother was murdered and his father is incarcerated for it. I mean, tell me about, did he talk to you about that? Do you guys, you know, did he... I mean, that's, that's a lot to deal with. Yeah, it's been it's been hard on him. It's 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 weird going through it because you know he's lost twice as much. How do you process that? I'd say it definitely affected me. Processing it, um, still it's awkward. Um. Try and live life day to day. Yeah. 
Do people ever bring it up to you? I mean, I know it's a really small town. I mean, is anyone like, oh, your mom was murdered and your dad did it? Some people, they heard about it because they've been around so long, but no one ever brings it up. Was it a weird thing in school? Yeah. Like kids would talk about it? Uh, they would wonder why I didn't have parents and stuff, and you'd be, like, looked at weird because of it. Today, Brendan is 24 years old, and he works as a butcher, and he says he loves his job. Is that, like, a career path you want to do? Like, do you want to own a butcher shop or something? Yeah, that's one of the plans that I have in life. Because mm-hmm. I had a lot of jobs since I was 18, but whenever I, uh, Worked a little small ma and pa butcher shop. I really loved it, and butchering isn't hard or anything, and it pays well. It's a good skill to have. So once they went out of business, I just hopped around from job to job until I found another butcher job and been at it for about two and a half years now. But David being in prison for life without parole, his dreams are much less aspirational. I guess a lot of people don't realize when you are a lifer, they don't really offer you programs. No, I can't take half of the programs that are even offered due to sheer time, and then the half that I am available for, I can't take until five years before parole. But being that they gave me life without, I'm not even, I can't even sign up for 90% of the stuff that they have here. The thinking is, why should we educate you and give you a better life when you're never going to get out? Many prisons are like this, where lifers can't sign up for school. David says he'd love to learn business so he can have his own car business when he is out, but he can't. David has figured out other ways to educate himself and the guys he's with. He's the president of the prison's cultural awareness program, where he and the guys go to the library, find interesting information, and come back and report it to the group. And they have fundraisers and donate the money to nonprofits. So he spends his time working, going to the gym, playing a lot of handball, and trying to figure out who killed Yvonne. And this truly could be the rest of David's life. Because as I mentioned, David doesn't have a lawyer anymore, and he ran out of money in all of his first appeals. And he's had a difficult time finding someone pro bono to take his case. And that's been a battle in itself because nobody wants to do anything without money. You know, a lesson that I've learned the hard way is out of sight, out of mind. But he hasn't lost all hope. And that's because he's had Sue on his side. Okay. I'm out of breath. I just walked up the steps. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I have David's dog, and I had to lock you in the cage or you'd be hearing woof, 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 Sue is David's longtime advocate and knows more about the case than anyone. I feel pretty confident saying that. She has sent me every document, interview, transcript, audio recording, you name it, that she has available in this case including her own reports. Wait, so how is he David's dog? Did he have him in prison? There was a prison program, uh-huh. and he's not allowed to be part of it because he's got a life without parole sentence. So he would just kind of buddy up to the guys who had dogs for the dog program so that he could hang out with the dogs. Today, Sue is more than David's advocate. She's also his wife. They got married in 2008, and she goes by Sue Glass Thorne now. But before she got involved in David's case, she was a family friend. Remember, she worked at the post office and was friends with David's grandparents 
and she couldn't believe what had happened to David. The guy I knew that came into the post office that threw up his hand and waved and grinned all the time, and he's just the nicest guy ever, I thought, no, this can't be. In her gut, she just believed in his innocence. She didn't know his supposed accomplice, Joe Wilkes, the young friend who told police David had hired him to kill Yvonne for $300. Something's missing. I can't, I can't understand. There's got to be more. And when she started doing her own digging, she did find more. So when you first came on the case, what was the first things that you did? I said, okay, well, I need to talk to Joe. So I wrote Joe a letter, but I didn't put a return address because I thought if this guy's a killer, I don't want him to know where I live. And so I didn't get a response. I finally wrote him and just put it on the table. I said, this is this is who I am. I know these people. I'd like to know your story. And he ignored me. He'd been screwed, screwed over by so many people. By that time, he wasn't about to play the game again. And then I got the documents at that point, and I read them, and I wrote him again, and I said, I don't think you did this because your statement isn't lining up. I don't. It doesn't make sense to me. So I gave him my phone number, and he called me. And that was on New Year's Eve 2000. The tape is pretty hard to hear. The entire conversation is about half hour long and then the phone gets cut off. And I do give Sue a pass for 2000s era recording. As soon as Sue answers the phone, Joe pretty much got to the point. But you're you're saying that you're changing your statement that you did not do this. And David did not. He had nothing to do with it. Just a few months after he testified at trial, Joe had recanted his confession. He said that he and David absolutely had nothing to do with Yvonne's murder. So Sue asked the obvious question, why would you say something you didn't do? He's hard to hear here. What he said is, police told Joe that David was filing for immunity. Remember, the cops lied to Joe and told him David was in the other room giving him up. So, oh, I see. So you said what they wanted you to say to get back at him, kind of. Oh. Uh, pretty much what they said. Try to save my ass. Uh huh. But they had nothing on you if you didn't do it, did they? I didn't do it. I was trying to go. I didn't. I knew nothing about the law. And they told me a story. They told me another one for me to tell them the same story. They did. They told me. The cops know this. They, his, his lawyers faked it right in court. Well, uh, the detectives told Mr. Wilkes. Right, but but the court kind of blew that off, so I didn't know if they were just guessing or if they really knew that to be true. They knew that to be true. If you remember, some of this came out in court, that the cops were telling Joe what to say, and Joe gave more details to Sue. Basically, they told him, help us help you. If you tell us what happened, you can go home. But more aggressively. He said that they put him in a room and they chained him to the wall by his arm and... They spit on him and they told him that they wanted him to confess because David was in the next room implicating him and they were going to put him in the electric chair and so forth. Joe said his lawyers even told him that was in his best interest to take a plea to avoid the death penalty, considering the statement David was allegedly making against him next door. This phone call with Sue was actually the first time Joe was hearing that David, in fact, did not make any statements to police nor implicate him in the murder. 
And giving this even more credibility, this wasn't the first time Joe was telling someone he didn't kill Yvonne. Actually, his minister and youth leader wrote in an affidavit that when she first went to visit him after his arraignment, he was crying and told her he did not do it. Who do you think did this? I don't know. But you don't believe it's David? No. David could never have done something like this, could he? He loved that girl. I know he did. And he loved that boy. After speaking with Joe, Sue knew she had just opened a can of worms, and she was determined to get to the bottom of it. Sue went back to the evidence presented at trial. Even though Joe said he didn't kill Yvonne, there was always the possibility that he did it, but not because David put him up to it, especially because Joe still put himself at the scene in his first interview with Sue. So from the day, from the moment you walked in that door, what is, what is your story then? You walked into, why did you go there? You just went to see her, you walked there from the hotel? Okay. Was she supposed to come to the hotel by any chance? Or? No, I was going to ask if she wanted to. Joe still told Sue that he walked from the hotel to go see Yvonne, but this time it was to invite her to a hotel party, which he said is the real reason he was at the hotel. And when he walked into her house, she was dead. And then what did you think when you saw her laying there? I didn't. You didn't think, you mean? The only thing I thought was the kids and get my ass out of there before I went to prison. So Joe put himself at the scene, but he said he didn't do it. And that is possible. Remember, David's defense attorneys didn't call an expert to rebut state's evidence. I discovered after trial that they had contacted somebody and not used him. And he had examined Joe's pants and Joe's knife, quote unquote. And uh, he said that there was no blood evidence on them and he would expect to find blood evidence even if they'd been in the elements for a period of time. He said there is no evidence at all of any blood on either of these items. No blood evidence whatsoever on the pants or knife that was allegedly used in this incredibly brutal, deep, virtually decapitating wound. That would have been important for a jury to hear. At what point did you get Brent Turvey on to examine the crime scene and and make his own opinion? He came on for the post-conviction. Brent Turvey, a nationally known criminal forensics expert, picked apart what he calls a botched case. Turvey said Joe could not have cut Yvonne's neck on the couch. For one, where Joe would have been sitting was covered in blood. Where there's, where he supposedly is sitting while he does this, there's blood spatter all over the skirt of the couch. So there's, unless the blood transferred through his entire body, there is no way anybody was sitting in that spot. This is what Turvey told Channel 5 News he believed happened and how the blood got on the couch. He said that the heavy blood spurts on the sliding glass doors suggested Yvonne was standing at the doors facing the puppies outside when her throat was slit from behind. Expert Brett Turvey says the killer struck while the victim was standing here by the sliding glass doors, slicing from behind. She uh, begins to spurt blood, uh, uh, pumping blood uh, violently out of her out of her neck. The killer supported the victim on the way down, then pulled her across the floor. And there's drag and, and smear marks in the blood. She's being assisted from the uh, sliding glass door area to the area between the couch and the television. 
Based on the photos, it appears there were also drag marks on the floor, like the killer may have dragged Yvonne after slicing her throat to move the body. And again, it was an incredibly bloody crime scene, and Joe had no blood on him. She said that it, it, Joe's statement did not match the evidence. Now, I'm not saying Turvey's account is the right one, but if someone like him had testified, it certainly could have left a reasonable doubt that Joe and David didn't do this. And then there's the motive. Prosecutors said David didn't want to pay child support. Well, I already told you David had money from his dad when he died, but Sue really broke this down for me. David inherited money from his dad's life insurance policy, which was deposited into an investment account. And by the time of Yvonne's murder, it had accumulated $135,000. On top of this, David said he was also making good money, about $14 an hour at Dale's Cuda shop, which in 1999, was pretty good money, around $22 today. And since he worked on cars, he said he also went to swap meets and sold expensive parts for cash. One part could pay a month of child support, which again was $351 a month. He had money. He could have paid off his entire 18 years of child support with a check. That's no exaggeration. If the request was for $351 a month, just do the math, and that equals around $76,000 for 18 years. David had almost double that. Granted that he had the money to pay doesn't actually mean that he was happy to pay it. We hear about well-to-do parents skipping out on child support all the time, but David said he genuinely didn't mind. He wanted to support his son and be the kind of father he wished he'd had. And even if you believe he's lying and he did mind paying the monthly bill, it just doesn't really make sense to me that he'd hire a young kid to kill Yvonne just to avoid paying child support. That seems really extreme and also reckless. Again, it's possible Joe did commit the crime without David, though if David didn't hire him to do it for $300, we don't really have a motive. Joe had only met Yvonne a couple of times, and it's unclear why he would kill her in such a violent way. However, there were other people who'd been in Yvonne's life who arguably had way better motive to kill her than David or Joe, whether he was paid $300 or not. When Sue first started on the case, it was 22 years ago. She was young and passionate and put in a ton of legwork, literally. Just went around knocking on doors because I was green at this. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just wanted to talk to everybody and get some information. One of the first people she spoke with was Linda McLaughlin, Eric Cameron's mother. Remember, Eric says he's the father of at least three of Yvonne's children. You talked to Linda at length about, you know, maybe her involvement. Yeah, I suspected everybody. Linda was taking care of Vinny, Yvonne's special needs son. Actually, she basically raised Vinny from the time he was born. Yvonne gave her Vinny when, from the hospital, is what I understand. Vinny needs special care, and so she kept him for the first couple of years, I think. And then, in fact, I think she kept him until he was four because she took Yvonne took him back just before the murder, which made me go, hmm. <laughs> right, because Linda wanted him. Right. 
There reportedly had been tension between Yvonne and Linda too, because Yvonne was getting social security money to help raise a son with disabilities, yet she wasn't the one taking care of him. Linda's own daughter, Tracy, told me that her mom and Yvonne did not get along. I also heard that Yvonne didn't really get along with your mom. Is that true? So Sue talked to Linda and recorded the conversation. Because I know she knows something that she may not know she knows or whatever. She knows so much about this situation about Yvonne and she was around during the time of the murder and she had to be considered a suspect. Everybody in her family did. So I just, I figured if she talked enough, maybe she'd let something slip or I'd finally rule her out. But she didn't slip and Sue asked her straight up. Her taking Vinny from you, would that make you go, I just want to kill her, or? No, no, no. Would you tell me if it did? Oh, yeah. Would you? I'd tell you anything. We're very good friends. Yeah. And I have no power. I can't take you in while you walk to jail. Well, I mean, I would help you if if you told me that you did it. I would help you. Now, did I ever think of doing anything like that? No. I thought about kicking the shit out of her. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie about that. There were times when I wanted to punch her out. But as far as killing, that that never even went through my mind. I I loved Vinny probably as much as I love my kids, and still do. That woman to woman, yes. Promise me, yeah. And and I'll turn this off if you make me. But no. you had anything to do with this at all that you want to tell me about? No. I want to rule you out. Yeah, no. You would have never taken that on her? No, I couldn't do that. Jeremy, in your opinion? Sue then asked Linda if her boyfriend at the time, Jeremy, may have killed Yvonne for Linda, knowing how upset Linda was over Vinny. I don't know. I, I don't see Jeremy doing anything like that. Would he do it for you? Because you're irritated that she took the baby. Remember, Yvonne took Vinny back just days before her murder. You know what? I'd have to say he was more irritated about it. Um, Would he have done it because he was irritated about it? I don't think so. I don't think Jeremy has that in him to do something like that. At least I can't imagine it. I mean, we had been around Jeremy for years. It's not Uh like we just met him or anything. And... He was, he could be violent. He's got quite a record. It is worth noting that Jeremy had a record, including domestic assault. Well, yeah, and I'm probably part of it. He's got assault? Yeah, would have been me, because he did. He beat me up. He beat me up a few times there. Now, something else to point out. Remember, four of Yvonne's kids were home with her when she was killed. Most were in the bedroom, but Vinny was loose in the house. When Vinny was asked after the murder if he saw anyone hurt his mother, the four-year-old replied that he saw a Josh, Jimmy, or Jeremy push mommy. Now, he didn't say all three of these names. It was unclear exactly what name he said. These were just the names it sounded like. Josh, Jimmy, or Jeremy. I remember that time I came to your house and I asked him something about if he was at work that night, and he said... 
And I just want to point out that if the police did consider Jeremy a suspect, there is no record of any conversation with him. I also want to point out that when I spoke to Preston, one of Yvonne's kids you had heard from in an earlier episode, he too pointed something out to me. When I went to bed that night, Vincent was in his underwear. And when Mimi found him, he was outside of his crib, which he couldn't get out of the crib by himself. At least not that I know of. And he was fully dressed, so that means somebody got him dressed. Vinny had already been put to bed that night in his diaper, and he slept in a crib that he couldn't climb out of alone. Yet he was out of his crib and fully dressed when police arrived. And it wasn't my grandma. So who would know where Vincent's clothes were? What do you think about that? I mean... <laughs> well, not many people could just grab Vincent. Vincent would, if he didn't know you, he would freak out. You couldn't just pick him up as a total stranger. So to Preston, it seemed like the person who murdered his mom was someone who knew Vinny, was able to hold him, dress him, and took care of him. Someone like his grandmother, or her boyfriend, or maybe Avon's father. Here's Linda again. The issue of her dad. Uh-huh. You know, and, I, and I, his abuse, I vividly remember Eric being upset over that. Yvonne's dad allegedly sexually abused her for years. What did she, she do? You mean saying my dad used to do that? He, no, that he tried to do it again and that he was doing it to the kids. Oh, he was, he was still molesting oh, her as, a, as an adult? As an adult, yeah. And her, the one sister said that too. That was the, that was another reason that Fred put up the camera was to catch him in the act, be it going after Yvonne or the kids. This is a little complicated, but bear with me. Fred said that Yvonne told him that her father, Sherman, was sexually abusive to her, and she thought he was also abusing the boys. In a sworn affidavit, Fred says he set up a video camera on top of the fridge four weeks before her murder so Yvonne could try to catch Sherman. You can see the camera in crime scene photos, along with a couple of VHS tapes. But what is on those tapes, we will never know. After the investigation, the tapes disappeared. Fred said he asked the police for them, and they told him that they knew nothing about it. Sherman also placed himself at Yvonne's house the day of the murder, and we don't have anyone giving him an alibi that evening. So did police ever look at Sherman? They wrote in their notes that they knew about him, quote, making Yvonne uncomfortable and masturbating in front of her and the kids. But despite this, there's no formal interview with him if the police did look into him. And it is possible that Sherman took the potentially incriminating VHS tapes when he went into the house the day of the murder after police allowed him in to gather clothes for the boys, like he said. If Yvonne's allegations were true, could he have killed her so she didn't expose him? Of course, that's very difficult to answer, and we might not. In terms of motive, though, it at least sounds a bit more convincing than $300. And although Fred and Yvonne became close over the years, 
Linda said it wasn't always like that. He had had a real hatred for her through the years and hatred for what she did there. And when Sue talked to Fred, she found out that he was actually supposed to be at Yvonne's that night. He told me himself that he was supposed to be there that night and that his car wouldn't start so he couldn't go. Later, he said, I didn't tell you that. And then he said, if my car didn't start, I would have just taken my bike. So he's told me two different stories about it, but it seems for someone that was dropping over there constantly, it was a pretty bad coincidence that he didn't make it there the night she really needed him to be there. Yeah, yeah, and I was confused by that too, which ultimately um, made me think that he could do something like that. Um, and, I, and I did, I flat out asked him if he did. Unfortunately, Fred is now dead. But there were other people worthy of police scrutiny who hung around Yvonne that are still alive. And there is a guy that she used to hang out with right around the corner from her house named Jim. And I interviewed Jim, and he was an interesting character. Jim lived directly behind Yvonne. As Sue mentioned, Yvonne would often hang out with Jim. Jim's never been formally accused in this case, so I'm only going to use his first name for now. I went to interview him just as a neighbor and a witness. And, uh, but then when I, when we finally did a FOIA that we got all the police handwritten notes and things like that, I thought, something's not right here. Remember, there was a neighbor across the street who said she saw Yvonne on the night of March 31st, the night Yvonne was murdered. The neighbor said Yvonne was outside around 5.30 p.m. crushing soda cans, talking to a 40-year-old white man about 5'7 in a plaid shirt with curly graying hair. Turned out it was Jim. And we know this because it's documented in the case file that Jim himself told officers he'd talked to Yvonne around that time in her driveway, just as the neighbor described. He was seen by a neighbor standing at her front door at 5.30 and the time of death is seven. She's got a bunch of cans, pop cans, dumped on the ground on her sidewalk right outside her door and she's smashing with her feet. And the neighbor saw her doing it. She never finished smashing them. They were still laying there when they found her body. Now, wouldn't you go finish that? Yeah. But he was standing outside her front door with her and he told them in a police handwritten note that it was, uh, he was there to see the puppies he might want a puppy. Jim told officers he went to Yvonne's to see the puppies Yvonne's dog had birthed. The puppies were on the deck, visible to anyone who could see the house. And I thought, oh, I'd never even, you know, and then I started putting the Jimmy stuff together. Remember, Vinny said he saw a Josh, Jimmy, or Jeremy push mommy. From what we know, Jimmy was the last person to see Yvonne alive. That was about 5.30 p.m. The coroner said Yvonne was likely dead around 7 p.m., just 90 minutes later. So if you're at the the door at 5.30, she's dead at 7. In that hour and a half, he had to see the puppies, have a conversation. You don't walk in and go, okay, there's puppies, bye. And then there's something else striking about Jim. David told me that Yvonne had complained about him before. She said that Jim would spy in her house with binoculars. Later, he told this to Sue. David was there at times, and he was in the boys' room with her. And she said, that SOV? And he said, what's the matter? And he said, he's looking in my windows again. 
Wow. Talking about Jim. Yeah, he got the impression it was from Jim's house. Jim, he told the officers that night, March 31st, he worked from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. This would have given him plenty of time to commit the crime and get to work by 10. So let's recap. Jim placed himself at Yvonne's house at 5.30 p.m. the night of the murder. Then he's at work at 10 p.m. When police asked what he did in between those hours, he said he went on a bike ride, something that's just impossible to verify. But it looks like police stopped following up on Jim, the last person to see Yvonne alive pretty soon after the murder. He was not called to testify, and there's no formal interview with him in the case file. All there is is one officer's third-person mention of what Jim told police the day her body was discovered, that he was there around 5.30 p.m. to see the puppies. And then a second neighbor told police he saw a guy leaving Yvonne's house before she was discovered that morning. This was a bombshell. He gave this police statement well before David's trial, and yet that report was never given to David's defense team. Something's missing here, and why didn't the prosecution turn this over, and what is going on here? What's up with that? And why it wasn't further investigated. So it makes me feel like there's more to the story. And we might know why. Coming up next time on Murder in Alliance. This man was in a house with a dead body and was either cleaning up for the killer or was the killer. And a guy came out with a trash bag. That's all I see. You know, just glance. Why that report wasn't provided to the defense? Like, what's up with that? Did you find somebody you recognize? Um, I did point out somebody. Hale says detectives told him later the picture he pointed out was that of an Alliance police officer. That that is the one key part of this case that just never sat right with me. Like the fact that it was never turned over to the defense is shocking. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining the Unjust and Unsolved Patreon. It shows how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes, Q&As, and events as a thank you. And please, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely we're going to get tips and leads and the right ears will be reached. Murder in Alliance is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. Aaron Case is our legal intern, and Bob Mallory is our engineering assistant. For more information and resources, go to murderinalliance.com. You can find Murder and Alliance on Twitter and Instagram at murder underscore alliance, and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Murder and Alliance is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. <laughs>